Section 11 of A Journey Round My Room by Xavier de Maistre Translated by Henry Atwell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 36 The Library I promised to give a dialogue between my soul and the other, but there are some chapters which elude me, as it were, or rather, there are others which flow from my pen, nolans, volans, and derange my plans. Among these is one about my library, and I will make it as short as I can. Our forty-two days will soon be ended, and even were it not so, a similar period would not suffice to complete the description of the rich country in which I travel so pleasantly. My library, then, is composed of novels, if I must make the confession, of novels and a few choice poets. As if I had not troubles enough of my own, I share those of a thousand imaginary personages, and I feel them as acutely as my own. How many tears have I shed for that poor Clarissa, and for Charlotte's lover! But if I go out of my way in search of unreal afflictions, I find in return such virtue, kindness, and disinterestedness in this imaginary world as I have never yet found united in the real world around me. I meet with a woman after my heart's desire, free from whim, lightness, and affectation. I say nothing about beauty. This I can leave to my imagination, and picture her faultlessly beautiful. And then... Closing the book, which no longer keeps pace with my ideas, I take the fair one by the hand, and we travel together over a country a thousand times more delightful than Eden itself. What painter could represent the fairy land in which I have placed the goddess of my heart? What poet could ever describe the lively and manifold sensations I experience in those enchanted regions? How often have I cursed that Cleveland, who is always embarking upon new troubles which he might very well avoid. I cannot endure that book with its long list of calamities. But if I open it by way of distraction, I cannot help devouring it to the end. For how could I leave that poor man among the abaci? What would become of him in the hands of those savages? Still less dare I leave him in his attempt to escape from captivity. Indeed, I so enter into his sorrows, I am so interested in him and in his unfortunate family, that the sudden appearance of the ferocious Ruintons makes my hair stand on end. When I read that passage, a cold perspiration covers me, and my fright is as lively and real as if I was going to be roasted and eaten by the monsters myself. When I have had enough of tears and love, I turn to some poet and set out again for a new world. Chapter 37 Another World From the Argonautic Expedition to the Assembly of Notables from the bottom of the nethermost pit to the furthest fixed star beyond the Milky Way, to the confines of the universe, to the gates of chaos, 
Thus far extends the vast field over the length and breadth of which I leisurely roam. I lack nor time nor space. Thither, conducted by Homer, by Milton, by Virgil, by Ossian, I transport my existence. All the events that have taken place between these two epochs, all the countries, all the worlds, all the beings that have existed between these two boundaries, all are mine. All are as lawfully belong to me as the ships that entered the Piraeus belong to a certain Athenian. Above all the rest do I love the poets who carry me back to the remotest antiquity. The death of the ambitious Agamemnon, the madness of Orestes, and the tragical history of the heaven-persecuted family of the Atrides inspire me with a terror that all the events of modern times could not excite in my breast. Behold the fatal urn which contains the ashes of Orestes. Who would not shudder at the sight? Electra, unhappy sister, be comforted, for it is Orestes himself who bears the urn, and the ashes are those of his enemies. No longer are the banks like those of Xanthus or Scamander. No longer do we visit plains such as those of Hesperia or Arcadia. Where are now the isles of Lemnos and Crete? Where the famous labyrinth? Where is the rock that forlorn Ariadne washed with her tears? Theseus is seen no more. Hercules is gone forever. The men, I and the heroes of our day are but pygmies. When I would visit a scene full of enthusiasm and put forth all the strength of my imagination, I cling boldly to the flowing robe of the sublime blind poet of Albion at the moment when he soars heavenward and dares approach the throne of the Eternal. What muse was able to sustain him in a flight so lofty that no man before him ever ventured to raise his eyes so high? From heaven's dazzling pavement which avaricious mammon looked down upon with envious eyes, I pass, horror-stricken, to the vast caverns of Satan's sojourn. I take my place at the infernal council, mingle with the host of rebellious spirits, and listen to their discourse. But here I must confess a weakness for which I have often reproached myself. I cannot help taking a certain interest in Satan, thus hurled headlong from heaven. I am speaking, of course, of Milton's Satan. While I blame the obstinacy of the rebel angel, the firmness he shows in the midst of his exceeding great misery, and the grandness of his courage inspire me, against my will, with admiration. Although not ignorant of the woe resulting from the direful enterprise that led him to force the gate of hell and to trouble the home of our first parents, I cannot for a moment, do what I will, wish he may perish in the confusion of chaos on his way. I even think I could willingly help him, did not shame withhold me. I follow his every movement, and take as much pleasure in travelling with him as if I were in very good company. 
In vain I consider that, after all, he is a devil on his way to the ruin of the human race, that he is a thorough democrat, not after the manners of those in Athens, but of Paris. All this does not cure me of my prejudice in his favour. How vast was his project! How great the boldness displayed in its execution! When the thrice threefold gates of hell fly open before him, and the dark, boundless ocean discloses itself in all its horror at his feet, with undaunted eye he surveys the realm of chaos, and then, opening his sail-broad wings, precipitates himself into the abyss. To me this passage is one of the noblest efforts of imagination, and one of the most splendid journeys ever made, next to the journey round my room. Chapter 38 The Bust I should never end if I tried to describe a thousandth part of the strange events I meet with when I travel in my library. The voyages of Cook and the observations of his fellow travellers, Banks and Solander, are nothing compared with the adventures in this one district. Indeed, I think I could spend my life there in a kind of rapture, were it not for the bust I have already mentioned, upon which my eyes and thoughts always fix themselves at last, whatever may be the position of my soul. And when my soul is violently agitated, or a prey to despair, a glance at this bust suffices to restore the troubled being to its natural state. It sounds the chords upon which I keep in tune the harmonies and correct the discords of the sensations and perceptions of which my being is made up. How striking the likeness! Those are the features nature gave to the best of men. Oh, that the sculpture had been able to bring to view his noble soul, his genius, his character. But what am I attempting? Is it here that his praise should be recorded? Do I address myself to the men that surround me? Ah, what concern is it of theirs? I am contented to bend before thy image, O best of fathers. Alas, that this is all that is left of thee and of my fatherland. Thou quittest the earth when crime was about to invade it and so heavy are the ills that oppress thy family, that we are constrained to regard thy loss as a blessing. Many would have been the evils a longer life would have brought upon thee, and dost thou, O my father, dost thou, in thine abode of bliss, know the lot of thy family? Knowest thou that thy children are exiled from the country thou hast served with so much zeal and integrity for sixty years? Dost thou know that they are forbidden to visit thy grave? But tyranny has not been able to deprive them of the most precious part of thy heritage, the record of thy virtues, and the force of thine example. In the midst of the torrent of crime which has borne their fatherland and their patrimony to ruin, they have steadfastly remained united in the path marked out for them by thee. And when it shall be given them to prostrate themselves once more beside thy tomb, 
thou shalt see in them thine obedient children. End of section 11